And he, Jesus, said to them, speaking to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he that is Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So the first verse is connected to last week's text in the Gospels. So in telling them about forsaking all to follow him, he gave this word that some there would not taste death till they saw the kingdom of God present with power. And the kingdom of God present with power is Jesus here on the mountain with Peter, John, and James and what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration where he was glorified. In other words, the glory of Jesus is veiled in human flesh, but that, that glory was unveiled in their presence. So as Jesus had that glory suppressed as the Son of Man walking amongst people, in that time, in that moment, it was allowed for Peter, John, and James, who would lead the church early on in the church age in the book of Acts, to see Jesus unveiled in his glory. It is interesting that Jesus is there with Elijah and Moses. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses died on the Jordan side of the Jordan River at Mount Nebo. And we know from extra-biblical writings and then affirmed in the New Testament through the book of Jude that Michael the archangel literally fought with Satan for the body of Moses. That's an established fact. Again, it's in an extra-biblical book, but affirmed as truth in the book of Jude from Jewish writings. So the body of Moses, there's something about the body of Moses that was very important. It's safe to say that Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer were three great angels of superpower in the different dimension of eternity in God's kingdom Lucifer, of course, being Satan, being cast out, and the third implied that a third of the angels went with him in the book of Revelation when he was cast out of that dimension. And in this dimension, he creates all of his havoc and just death and destruction as the father of lies. We know that Michael and Gabriel have special places. Gabriel spoke to Mary. Gabriel declared the coming of Jesus. And we know that Michael is very special, also in the Old Testament, uh, with Daniel and so on and so forth. He's considered the angel of the Jewish people. So it's quite possible that Michael's greatest days in the realm of time are in the future in preserving the nation of Israel and the end of the age when the church is caught up to be with the Lord. So these three great angels. Now, Satan contended with Michael. So they knew each other from the dimension of the throne room of God for the body of Moses. Elijah, on the other hand, was caught up to be with the Lord. So Elijah is not a book in the Bible 
as one of the prophets, major or minor, in the Old Testament, but he is considered the greatest of prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, we know the last book of the Old Testament, it's revealed that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. Okay, so we're just putting scripture to scripture as we think about the context of the Mount of Transfiguration. We know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to cancel the law of God, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus, in his coming, he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures of the law, which Moses was led to write, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But in the Jewish mindset, the law would, it would be considered the totality of the Old Testament historical books. So from Genesis you know, through uh, Esther, all those historical books. And the prophets would be all the prophetic books. So starting with Isaiah as a major prophet through Daniel and on through to uh, Micah and Malachi and the rest of them. The law of God points to Jesus and the prophets point to Jesus. Jesus said to those who rejected him, the religious leaders, he goes, he said that he has a witness because they said to Jesus, you make witness of yourself. He goes, oh, the father bears witness of me. The Miracles that I do bear witness. Moses bears witness of me. Moses spoke of Jesus' coming, and of course the prophets all over the place. Jesus is in implied or directly prophesied in every book of the Old Testament. So it's, it's all there. Okay, So the whole Old Testament is moving toward Jesus coming to, as the Savior of the world to, to live the perfect sinless life in our place, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise from the grave for our hope and justification. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's Jesus with... Two people from time past, okay? And they're here with Jesus in time present. So we can presume that Moses is there with his glorified body and because he died in time, space, and matter. But Michael took his body and contended with the devil himself for it. Now, Elijah is the famous story of being caught up in the chariot, Elijah's chariot. And when Elijah was caught up into heaven, Elisha, his disciple, was there with him to see it. And the people were prepared that Elijah was going to be caught up into heaven. And he's not the first one to be caught up into heaven. Enoch walked with God in the uh, primeval world, the, the pre-flood world, and was not, and was caught up to be with God. And then Elijah was caught up to be with God. And I've shared this, but years ago, when doing a Bible study with my daughter Leah, a personal devotion, and doing the study on Elijah and his chariot, I had this breakthrough from the Holy Spirit where all became so clear to me. Because Elijah's traits like Jonah and the fish and these stories where it's supernatural. So if you limit yourself to natural thinking and the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. But when you understand that God works in time with the power of eternity, then the supernatural supersedes everything. But particularly with the story of Elijah, when I had this devotion with Leah, I had this vision from the Lord of how it happened. That it's like there's a curtain behind us. There's like a curtain here in time, space, and matter, and it opens up when eternity comes. It, it opens up. So to those who are transcending the dimensions, they see themselves going through that. That's when I talk about Melissa in camp, when the Lord came for her, she got up out of her deathbed and moved toward the wall because that curtain was opened up for her. Jesus was coming, and she said, I'm healed to her husband. All right? Like, for me, I'm limited to time, space, and matter. I see the wall to this dimension, and but she gets out of her deathbed, and she's going this way because Jesus came for her. That was that was it. That, so she went in that dimension. So now it opens up, and like when Jesus ascended to the Father, it's the same thing where they're all there, and then he goes up, 
And like I say, he doesn't just keep going into outer space like Apollo 13 or 11 or something or a Jeep going to Mars. He goes up and then that dimension is open and it closes. Like there's a moment where it just, you just pass right through the dimensions, just right through the dimensions into the next dimension. And that's what happened with Elijah. That literally that dimension opened up because you say chariots of fire. But remember, there's two types of fire with God. There's the holy fire, like the burning bush, that just keeps burning, but it, it, it doesn't consume like your campfire at San Onofre, all right? It, it just, it's a holy fire. And then there's a fire that does consume. And the chariots of fire that came, they come out of the other dimension and they sweep up Elijah. And Elisha is a witness to Elijah being swept up. And they come like a whirlwind, because it says like a whirlwind, and sweep him up. And he goes right up like Jesus ascending and right through the dimension. And he's gone. And the coat falls to Elisha, who had asked for a double portion of the spirit that God had on Elijah, which God gave him, and the rest is biblical history for the Jews. So Elisha never, Elijah never died. He was caught up. Moses died, but his body was contended for. So these two come back into time now. They come out of the dimension of eternity into time, and there they are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, representing the law and the prophets. And Peter, John, and James knew who they were. They knew who they were. So it was revealed to them that these are them. So you can imagine these, these three fishermen that have been in the fishing business together, disciples of Jesus, still figuring everything out. Peter's already walked on water, you know, so there's, there's things happening. They, you know, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They're seeing the supernatural, but now they're on this mountain. And first of all, Jesus has 12, and he picks these three from the 12. And they had already been in the room with Jairus for the raising of the daughter. They've had special moments just with Jesus. And that's fine. Jesus can do whatever he wants in someone else's life. We should never compare what he's doing in your life by someone else's. And some he gives five, some he gives two, some he gives one. The real issue is what you do with what he's given you. For that's what we're going to be accountable for. And these three, see, it's not all equality. God gives different people different skill sets for different purposes. And the whole idea that we're all got this, it all has to be equal playing field is not necessarily the case in the human experience, nor is it of a divine nature. And the parables of the minas and talents tell us that. God gives us all different things. And it's never about how much he gave us, but it's what we do. That's what we're measured by, what we do with what he gave us. So these three, Jesus has them set apart. There's a special work for them. And there they are, and here they are, and there's Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And, of course, Peter always has to say something, right? So Peter says, ooh, it's good we're here. Yeah, you think? Let's build tabernacles for all three. This is an interesting statement because he's basically saying, like, hey, let's, let's have a moment here. Elijah's tabernacle, the prophets. Moses' tabernacle, the law. And Jesus' tabernacle, the Messiah. It sounds like a good plan. But here's something that you really want to think about before we move on from this text. God the Father spoke to them. See, God the Father did most of his speaking through Jesus to these apostles. But he came over them in a cloud. This isn't like a marine layer coming in in June. This is a different kind of cloud. This is the holy cloud. And these guys are already afraid, and the narrative tells us that they were afraid. Because they're in a different dimension, in a sense, right now. And Jesus' glory is revealed, and they're seeing his glory. So it's just, it's, how can we even wrap our minds around this story, Right? But this is the glory that we'll see when we step into eternity. And then the father comes over and he says, this is my son. This is my son. Hear him. He spoke. Now, see, the Bible says no one can see the father at any time uh, and live, right? That's Jesus. No one has seen the father, but the only begotten of the father, the son, he has declared him 
to us full of grace and truth. But here the Father comes and speaks out loud to Peter, John, and James. The guys who will change the world. The guys who will outlast the Caesars and Rome that we're still here today outlasting all the human governments that have come and gone in the timelines leading up to this night. The Father speaks to these guys who are going to be those sent out with all authority to change the world, who would be entrusted in passing that authority on to the next generation of the church, which comes down to our generation of the church. The Father spoke to them and said, this is my son, hear him. And we're told that the Holy Spirit's work is to exalt Jesus in the church. It's always about Jesus. So forget the three tabernacle plan. That's not part of the plan. In fact, when the cloud pulls back, what do they see? They only see Jesus. Because that's who we're going to see when we breathe our last. That's who we're going to see worshipped in heaven. That's who we're going to be worshipping in heaven. Jesus equals heaven. Heaven equals Jesus. Jesus equals worship. Worship equals Jesus. It's a, for a guy that's not very good at math, I can figure that equation out on a chalkboard. Okay? It's all about Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain from before the foundation of the world. So they only see Jesus. See, these guys are going to change the world. They're going to have a message that changes the world. And it's going to start in their hometown of Jerusalem or their region of Jerusalem. And it's going to go to the ends of the earth by the time they step into eternity. And it has to be about Jesus. It can't be about community over Jesus. Community at the expense of truth. It can't be about Jesus plus this pharisaical doctrine. Or Jesus minus these things to be like a Sadducee. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's Jesus. The apostles' doctrine the New Testament talks about, it's all about Jesus. That all the law and the prophets speak of Jesus. So everything we study in the Old Testament brings us to Jesus. It's always Jesus. Whenever a church becomes anything other than Jesus being the head of the church and the focal point of the church, that church is going to lose its power and become impotent and powerless. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, Jesus said. And the church exists to be under the preeminent one, Christ, who walks in the midst of the church, as we're told in Revelation, and to give him honor and glory and to worship him. The whole universe truly does revolve around Jesus. And we're created by him and for him and to fulfill his purposes in our life and become a better version of who you are because of Jesus in you working through you. It's not about important men or women. Moses and Elijah, even great men and women. It's not about the personalities and the cult of personality. It is about Jesus, the Savior of the world. And it is interesting, even as they're coming down the mountain, they say, well, how come Elijah, it says Elijah will come, and Jesus says he will come. But remember, when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah about his son, John the Baptist, he said he'd come and go forth in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah. But he's not Elijah. John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated because John the Baptist has already lived and he's been beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch. This is Elijah who is caught up in the chariot of fire that's come back. Many people believe in Revelation 11, the two prophets in the end of the age, that one of those two prophets is Elijah because he didn't die. Some believe it's Enoch because he didn't die either. But there are two prophets in the end of the age, described for us in the book of Revelation, who perform great miracles in Israel before the Lord returns with his church at the end of the age. He comes for his church, and then seven years later, he comes with his church. So during that time of the seven years where Israel has the renewed covenant with God, there are two prophets, and they describe the miracles of Moses and Elijah. So 
It's quite possible it's linked even to this story here. But you know what's interesting? Jesus is here on the mountain in his glory between Moses and Elijah. But when he's dying on the cross for our sins, he's on the cross between two criminals. Isn't that amazing? Because his rightful place is between the law and the prophets in glory. But the place he took for you and I to be saved from our sins is between two criminals. We call him Savior because that's what he gave up. So I wonder if Peter, John, or James connected that, seeing Jesus on the cross, that they connected how they saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses, seeing him with the criminals on the cross as a criminal. It's amazing. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who considered it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Not just dying, but dying capital punishment for sinners. It's amazing. The question they said about Elijah Jesus answered and said, hey, that's going to happen. And he already came, a type of Elijah came with John the Baptist. That's what he's saying. And the real Elijah will come, it's implied. But the real issue is, it's not about Elijah. How is it written concerning the Son of Man, verse 12, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, the focus has to always come back to Jesus. It can't be about any great, I mean, we can respect and appreciate great women of God and great men of God. It's... It's Jesus. For all the people that we could esteem in their faith and their relationship with the Lord, and it'd be great to have them be there for us when we're facing the grave, but we get left behind. We get left behind. I was in the room with Jeremy Camp and Melissa Henning Camp and Melissa's mom when she passed, and I was there as a pastor and a friend, and I was blessed to be there. But I'm just a man in time, space, and matter. It was Jesus who came for her. I can't do anything. We... This is a beautiful story that it's always got to be about Jesus. It's always Jesus is the center, like the Vineyard song in the late 90s. Jesus, be the center of my life. Be the wind in these sails. Be the fire. That's, that's it. So it just reminds us, as we turn the corner to the second quarter of the year, that it's not what we're doing, it's who we're believing. We read on. Verse 14, when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, but that, that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered, that is, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? Will I be with you? How long shall I bear you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter in him no more. And then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. 
So right out the mountaintop experience, Peter, John, and James come down the mountain trying to figure out what Elijah's all about and what they just saw and were a part of. They're trying to calibrate on that experience they just had and understand what Jesus meant that he was going to die, be killed, and rise on the third day. I mean, they're just trying to wrap their minds around that. And we know from the Gospel of Luke where we're at right now on Saturday night, they still they couldn't get it. Even They just they had a hard time getting it. So we know that they're just working through it. And we know even just the previous chapter, Jesus rebuked them for not learning the lessons of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. So these three, they're like, wow, okay, we have to figure this out. But then they come down, and right away there's conflict. This scribes disputing. We talked about this. These guys, we talked about this. These guys traveled 60 miles one way to just find fault and argue with Jesus. Some people just love to dispute. I, I don't understand it. But, uh, and they're wrong. So the only thing worse than disputing is being wrong with what you're disputing, right? Think that through. It's one thing if you're disputing and standing up for the truth. It's quite another if you're disputing just for your opinion or the opinions of men and even worse, falsehood against the truth, which is what they were doing. It's a terrible place to be. We never want to be there. So make sure if you're disputing, you're disputing for truth and you know the truth. And you're rightfully handling the word of God. If you're going to get a dispute, get a dispute for Jesus. Don't get in dispute over things that have nothing to do with Jesus if you can avoid it. And even then, let truth be on your side and falsehood be that what you're disputing. Because God will honor that. But these guys, man, they're just... And look at Jesus. He's like, what are you discussing with them? See how Jesus walks in the scene and goes like, what are, you, what are you guys discussing? What's going on? What's happening here? And then uh, the crowd, the guy goes, hey, teacher, I came. And these guys, your guys, they couldn't do it. It is interesting. It says, but they could not. Jesus is teaching the apostles, and we've seen this from the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 previous to this chapter, that he's trying to teach them to have faith, the apostles, and work with what you have. Remember with the, the feeding of the 5,000, he said, you feed them. Philip goes, how are we going to feed them? A year's wage couldn't feed these people. And he's like, and then Jesus multiplied it. The feeding of the 4,000, what do you got? We got seven loaves of bread. Okay, so he feeds 5,000, 12 baskets full of bread. Then he feeds 4,000. With seven loaves, seven baskets. He multiplies whatever it is. So he's teaching these guys the principle of faith and multiplication when they look to him. He's going to say time and time again, if you have faith, you can move mountains. If you have faith, you can do greater than what I've done. And that's passed on in the church age. And I wonder how much we miss because we don't take him seriously at his promises or we don't come reverently in the purposes of what God has for us. And I speak for myself on that more than any of you in this room. I say that more to me than anyone else I can think of. Because I read the same verses you read sometimes. They go like, why, why is that not happening? And how does that happen? And what, do, what would I have to do to be a part of that? Really thinking about that. Just trying to be sensitive to the Lord. Like when the Lord says, hey, go talk to that person. Or go give them money. Or pray for these people. Or go to Afghanistan. You know, like just, what's, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, until you take that step of faith, you don't know what the Lord's going to do. The supernatural is in the obedience of the first step. He wants to do great things, but if you don't step out and do it, then it's not going to happen. Like, that's how it works. We fill the water pots, and then he turns it to wine. Like, there's a, there's a step of faith where our faith meets the place of the supernatural. And so these guys, look what he said in verse 18, the dead. He goes, but they could not. Right, they couldn't. They could not. These guys had cast out demons, they had preached the gospel, they would healed people, they'd done great things when Jesus sent out the 12, but they came up against a foe here. They came up against something that was superior to them. So we have to ask, 
Why could they not, apart from the answer that Jesus already gave, is there more implied by this? If we're not able to flip the storyline of faith versus fear or the kingdom of light versus darkness in obedience to the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, is the Lord in this, right? I mean, he did tell Paul no twice in Acts 16 when he was going out on a mission trip, right? He said no twice. The Holy Spirit forbid him. There might be times like you just don't have the power because it's not, okay, maybe this isn't us. This isn't, we're not in God's will. We don't have the authority in this place. And that that can happen. I've, I've been there before. It can happen. It might be because we don't realize how serious the situation is, like the text implies. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything anyways. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the reality is we can't, we can't do it on our own. So self-confidence could keep us from accomplishing what God has because like, hey, I got this. I got this. Actually, we don't. The Lord has this, and we need to just acknowledge him in all of our ways and let him bring it to pass. Let God be, be true and let God do what he wants to do. So Jesus intervenes. Of course, we see what he does here. He casts out the demon. And I like the bonus uh, statement, and never come back. Did you catch that? Leave and never come back. It's not a temporal victory. It's a total victory. How sweet it would be to have the Lord just pronounce things that are against us in our life, leave and never come back. But you know, when we make the right choices every day, it kind of moves in that direction anyways. Leave and never come back. Love how the man says, right, this famous story where he goes, I believe but help my unbelief. I think we can all relate to that one, right? Like we're believing God for great things and it's like, I don't know though, it's a pretty big mountain. <laughs> like, I'm believing you, God, and then you realize, like, man, help my unbelief, because we, it's like John the Baptist in prison, it's like, are you the one, or do we look for another? It's like Peter walking on water, it's like, man, I'm walking on water, and it's a storm, and the waves are big, and I'm about to drown. Like, the more you, you just start to go down, and the, that's why the Bible says, take every thought captive and obedient to Christ, and we need to just load left side brain, right side brain, promises of God, both sides, on all cylinders, because once we take our mind off the promises of God and focuses on the problem and we focus on the problems of humanity and ourselves, sometimes the image in the mirror can be such a discouragement for the work of God. I gotta say, look in the mirror, brush your teeth, don't look too long. Just get it done because, you know, if you think you're great, then that's going to hinder God that way. But if you look too long, you're just going to be like, whoa, man, it's, it's over. But his grace is sufficient for us. And it's God willing and working us for his good pleasure. So it's like, you know what? I am who I am by the grace of God. That's who we are. And we need to be full of the promises of God. To, to, to have our faith strengthened, we need to have a testimony of what God's done in our life as we've taken steps of faith and trusted him. And then you can share the stories of faith and pass them on to other people because one generation will proclaim your praises to another. And a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And I think much more than wealth and the estate is the faith that's passed on two generations down is far more valuable than wealth that gets left behind. We need to take those steps of faith to build our faith to see what God's done. We, we need to be faithful in the little things and see God come through so we can trust him in bigger things and see him come through. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Paul said we walk by faith. And if we're not being stretched in faith, if we're not in situations and being stretched in circumstances that are beyond us, the faith element is removed. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence is not yet seen. So what we can control and manipulate does not require faith. So God's going to constantly stretch us 
out of our comfort zone to do things that we, that just when you figure like, oh, I can do this, and it's like, well, let's call you to do this. And it just keeps going that way. Because we don't want to settle on our dregs. Sharing with Eric Estes before service, he was talking about being poured out. There's that famous verse in the Old Testament where God says that Moab, the neighbor of Israel, they've not been poured out from container to container. They've settled in their dregs. We need to be poured out from container to container to get the dregs out. We don't want the dregs. We settle in our dregs. Then that's just the beginning of a, a rut, which is nothing more than a, a, the setup for a grave. We need to be poured out. We need to be taking steps of faith to get us out of our comfort zone so we don't settle in our dregs because each step of faith purifies us a little more and gets rid of a little more things that are contrary to what God's doing in our life. So, Lord, we believe, but then you get somebody like, oh, I help my unbelief. The first time we went to Chile to do the outreach in Pichilemu with Hector and Jacob and Lee and all, this is old theater in Pichilemu, a small town on the coast there. I just was so nervous. You know, it's one thing to do an outreach with Christian surf movies in America with all these surfer kids there. You just show the movie, get up, preach the gospel, see what God wants to do. But, man, Chile was just so intimidating. It was just so, we'd travel, a red-eye flight, we'd driven, landed right into winter down there. And you just like, whatever it is, you just got to, you just got to stay in the moment. But you just, inside, you're just like, ah, you know, like you're just so, I was so nervous. Just so, this old theater and about 40 Chileans just staring at me. And Hector using Santa Ana Spanish, translating. It was epic. And then Nathan Anderson, who had become our great friend, he said, man, his Spanish was all wrong. Really? Yeah, it's a different Spanish. I'm like, well, they seemed to understand what was going on. The next day, that one guy, we met him to go surfing. We walked four miles to go surfing at some secret surf spot that wasn't any good. But I used all the Spanish I had walking two miles in and two miles out. Three months later, that one kid was at the YWAM base and fully committed to the Lord in ministry. And he's become one of the most productive servants of the Lord to come through that YWAM base in the last 20 years. He came to that theater with me, nervous, Hector Santa Ana Spanish. And in spite of all that, The next day we went surfing and just hung out. And the rest truly is church history in South America. Lord, help our unbelief. There's moments you just go like, this is so beyond me. And you're almost like Jesus, like, into your hands I commit my spirit. You just got to go and do what God's called you to do. And you take the step of faith. And what I always do, by the way, when I'm most nervous, and believe me, it's just channeling it. I'm glad I have had life experiences that have taught me how to channel fear and nerves and emotion. I just channel it, and this is what I always tell myself. I'm dying in an hour, so make it count, preacher. I just fake myself out. This is my last hour on the planet, and suddenly I'm, like, filled with boldness because I think I'm going to die in an hour. And then I don't die in an hour, and then I go to bed late at night going, like, man, I was on fire. You know, it's like I'm still alive, you know. So whatever it takes, I just put eternity in front of me. When I'm really nervous, I just say, what if this is my last hour? And I'm like, Pastor Chuck's last sermon or George Whitfield's last sermon. I want to bring it with everything I got. And then whatever happens, happens. Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll say in that hour. So whatever we're believing him in, he knows that we need help with our faith. But as you take steps of faith, your faith and confidence will grow in the Lord and who he is and what he can do in and through you with his calling on your life. But don't settle on your dregs. We need to be poured out from vessel to vessel. That's not easy. 
It's not easy when you feel like you've been betrayed and you're being poured out by people you love and trusted and they're pouring you from vessel to vessel. A man or a woman can see nothing unless it's from the Lord. This kind come out by fasting and prayer. This last little bonus thought on this is we got to out-hustle the kingdom of darkness. That's what Jesus is saying here. You got to out-hustle them. You know, sometimes you watch sports events and you can just tell one team just wants it more. And they say in basketball, the team that dies for the loose ball, they're contending for every rebound, they're fighting for every single thing. It's like, and they're just out-hustling. You don't ever want to get out-hustled in sports. You don't want to be out-prepared, and you definitely don't want to be out-hustled. You want to bring more passion to the game than your opponent. And by the way, as a pro athlete, that was one of my main foundations of my surfing. I was an average pro surfer, but I was always at maximum level to compete, and I was known as a tenacious competitor. In fact, in being described in my life, even before Christ, when they had the uh, issue on the top 20 surfers in the world, they had one word for each surfer, and for me, they just had this. It didn't say style, professional. No, it just said feisty. Right, because you're in for a fight right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, what, all that I got, I'm going to throw at you. The kitchen sink, haymakers, whatever I got, I'm chucking it your way. And if you're going to beat me as a superior athlete, you're not going to beat me with less than your A game. And, that's, and I did not want to be out-prepared or out passioned in the battle to be an elite athlete, and it served me very well in my career. And it's helped me in ministry because ministry is a battle, and I've learned we, want to, we, we don't want to be out-sacrificed. The kingdom of darkness wants to out-hustle us. I've been studying the rise of communism in Russia and China, Mao Zedong, Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, these guys, and I'll tell you one thing about these ruthless, brutal, evil men. They were viciously determined in what they were doing like violent criminals playing head games, they were, they were so determined. It was conquer the world in communism or die. Their, they, their, their will, their sheer will in the Bolshevik Revolution, the you know, Russian Revolution with the Bolsheviks and the rise of the Red Party, it's, it's unbelievable how determined they were and what risk they took against all odds to come to power, and they did. And I just think, man, if these guys... These ruthless, brutal men did this for communism. How much more should we be all in with love for the kingdom of God in the last days? Amen. That's what I think. I'm not going to let Lenin out-hustle me. You know what I'm saying? These are brutal men, evil men, women. They killed millions of innocent people. It just motivates me to die to self so I can save millions of perishing people. That's how I feel about that. These come come out by fasting and prayer. Hope to see you prayer on Monday night. Verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So they just, they just couldn't get it. They just... It's a mystery to me. It's a bit of a riddle how they didn't get it because he told them at least three times and his enemies got it. But he loved these guys. He empowered these guys. The women, they changed the world. It's amazing. But they just here, they just did not understand. And I think we can all relate to that. There's things, sometimes we just don't get it and God wants us to get it. But it's like, Lord, help our unbelief and Lord, help us understand. Verse 33, then, they, then he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? They kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, 
called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one can work a miracle in my name and can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, as surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. My attention is drawn to verse 34, where it says they disputed amongst themselves who'd be greatest. So they've been disputing the religious leaders, right? Jesus came upon a dispute. It says they were contending. Verse 14 said that they were disputing. The apostles were in a dispute with the scribes. And it's one thing to have to dispute with the, those that are opposed to you, but it's quite another when you have disputes amongst yourselves and you implode. That's the that's strategy of the devil. Uh, divide from within and conquer. We know that. And these guys have a dispute over who's going to be greatest. And Jesus said very clear that the first shall be last and servant of all. We never have to wonder what greatness looks like in the, in the kingdom of God in this dimension. It's serving others and esteeming others better than yourself. We want to, in our natural man, natural woman, we want to rise up and lord over others. It's a human way. But we're such a contrast to the world, and we're called to lose our lives and serve others. If we want to be great, it comes in losing our life and serving others. And there's a great challenge in that, but God will always honor that. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in servanthood, there is humility. And esteeming others better than yourself, there is humility. And that gives God the ability to work. We're not trying to build a kingdom and leave behind and lord over people in the temple. What we're trying to do is die to ourselves, become more like Christ to win people for eternity. And that's where all the fruit is. That's where the payoff is in eternity. Not that it's even the motive. Just that we pass from death to life. We want others to pass from death to life. Every time I... Ah, just life is so short. And just, you know, hearing of a teenage suicide last week in Vero Beach and my daughter having to be at the memorial yesterday, it just rips your heart out where we just get this one life and then it's gone. And we have our life. And when I had my attempted suicide and then I got saved after that, the Lord's like, you kind of had the right idea. You don't want to take your life. You want to surrender your life is what the Lord showed me. It's not about killing yourself. It's about dying to yourself. That's what the Lord spoke to me in the spring of 1987. Like literally the Lord's like, you've got in a way the right idea. It's just, it's not you ending the journey. It's you surrendering the journey, putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ. And I'm just so grateful that uh, there's not a tombstone somewhere or something that says that Joey Brand died in 1986 because Joey Brand tried to die in 1986. And I'm glad I'm still alive in 2019 to teach God's word here this night with all of you in Mark 9, chapter 9. It's not about lording over others. It's about serving others. And then, and even so, we see John in verse 38 where he says, well, we told those guys don't do this because they're not following us. It's not about controlling others. It's never about controlling others. Promotion comes from the Lord. In the parable of the, the wheat and the tares, where the enemy sowed the wheat, the, the tares among the wheat, the, in that parable, the the stewards of the property said to the master, what do we do? Do we just rip it all up? He's like, no, just let them grow together. It'll, it'll, at the end of the harvest, harvest it all. We'll separate the wheat from the tares. God will, it, God will sort it out. 
We're not, we don't know it all, and it's not our place to tell everyone in the body of Christ that we know it all. Preach the gospel, teach the word, rightfully divide the word of truth, give place for other people, distinctions amongst the 12 tribes, if you will. Stay on point with our stewardship, and let the farmers down the street stay on point with their stewardship, because we have our hands full with our own stewardship. And if it comes in our wheelhouse and we got to deal with it, we deal with it. But it's not our place to go, hey, don't you do that. And you guys, you know, I, I don't have the time to tell anyone else's ministry what to do. i got my hands full just seeking the Lord and, and properly discussing and praying and working through with the other leaders of this church and with all of you together, accountable to one another, how we're going to go forward in this generation, in this time. So let's just focus on what God's entrusted to us. I think that's a good word. That's what Jesus said. Like, hey, I want to focus on the blessings. It's trying to tell, instead of trying to tell someone down the street what to do at their church, I'd rather be helping the guy on the street that needs money or resources or love or encouragement or prayer in Jesus' name. And can I get an amen? Like, seriously, I don't have time to worry about what people are doing around us in other churches and what they do right or don't do right or how they choose to worship or whatever. It's like, there are so many people that are in such great need, the labor, the harvest truly is plentiful and the labors are few. There's not enough time to pray for all the needs that we're aware of around the world that God brings in our, in our sphere of influence, sphere of influence. There's just not enough time. There's, there's not enough resources. It's like, so you look at verse 41, this is where the blessings are. And I really, this is almost, we've almost got this, we're almost here tonight, but Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, it's true they say to you, who by no means loses reward. Man, so bountifully, the time, the love, the energy, the resources, in the measure you sow, you will reap. Just be a generous person of disposition. Be a giver. Be a dreamer. Be a believer. Not a taker and a hater and a curser. Like, just so bountifully believe in the promise of God. Believe in people. Believe in the best for people. And do it as unto the Lord. You will by no means lose your reward. So dole it out in Jesus' name as you feel led. And let the blessings be upon you in eternity and even in time. Let the legacy of your life be that you sowed, 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 and you're still sowing. Jeremy and I were discussing Pastor Chuck the other day, just his legacy, having been in eternity now for almost five years or whatever, how his wisdom and frugality to have Murrieta, to have Twin Peaks and the Vita in, us, in uh, Hungary and the, the, Nat, the Nazi training center in Austria and all, just all these things. And the, even the Bible college in Brazil that was kind of a nightmare for everybody because all these limits. And now they have Venezuelan refugees going there and ministering the gospel to them. It's like, you know, you just make good decisions and so wisely and bountifully and let God work and you'll see it in your time, but it'll, it'll, it'll produce long after you're gone. It's like when you're in retirement and all those things are working for you when you make good investments, but you're, you're in eternity and it's still working for you in time after you're gone. And finally, we close with verses 42 on. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a really difficult verse. Stay away from that one at all cost. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell and to fire that shall never be quenched where, now quoting Isaiah 66 in the Old Testament, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet and be cast into hell into fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast in hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. This text is unique to Mark's gospel. What we read right here, this last part, is unique in Mark's gospel. It is similar to certain things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's very unique in Mark's gospel. Our hands get us into trouble. What we go after, our feet, where the direction we go, our eyes, what we look after, it gets us into trouble. Now, it's a hyperbole. Jesus isn't teaching self-mutilation here, but he's definitely taught us to think about what we go after in life, what we run toward in life, and what we look after and look upon in life. As a man or woman thinketh and pursue, that's what they'll become. And if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption, but if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For what you sow, you will reap if we're moving toward the kingdom and the promises and the good things, and that's what our eye sees, our eye is good. And our hands are the, the carbon prints of life and light and serving others. And our feet are moving toward needs and advancing the kingdom. Those are the good things that we want to be. We don't want our hands getting us into trouble. We don't want our foot getting us into trouble and our eyes getting us into trouble. And hell is real. Jesus taught more on hell than he did heaven. And he died on the cross, so we don't have to go there. So... That's plain and simple. And, of course, stumbling people, that is the worst. Whoever causes these to stumble, verse 42, that is just a terrifying verse, and it has converted a lot of people. My good friend Jim Hoffs was converted through this verse almost 30 years ago. This verse was read to him, and it, the Holy Spirit illuminated to him that he was stumbling his, his children, and he repented and gave his life to the Lord, and he's been serving the Lord ever since for 30 years some of the good fruit from the drug and alcohol ministry at Calvary Vista in 1989. It's amazing. It's a powerful verse. It's a very strong one. Like I said, avoid at all costs. But everyone will be seasoned, verse 49, with fire. God tests things with all, all things are tested by fire. The holy fire tests everything. We're all seasoned by fire. God puts us through the fire like Meshach, Targa, and Abednego. We all, we all get a little fire. It's like the dregs being poured out in the dregs. Job, when he went through his trial, said, I've been refined in the fire, and when I come forth, I'll be like pure gold. The fire he saw of his trials, the fiery trials, were eliminating the things that were contrary to God's good work in his life. And we have to go through the fire. And then salt, of course, Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount. So he said, have salt among yourselves. Now, salt adds flavor, and salt is a preservative. So it's ironic in a chapter where the apostles were fighting over who would be first, he says, the last thing he says in verse 50 is, hey, have salt in yourselves, have peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves, have peace with one another. We want to be the salt. We want to be the salt in the home. We want to be the salt in the neighborhood. We want to be the salt at work. We want to be the salt in the community and in our country. However our journey ends, we want to be found being part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we want to let every fire that tests us purify us to be more like Jesus and give a greater flavor to our life through the blessing and the benefit of everybody we come in contact with. And can I get an amen on that? Amen.